Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Deuteronomy. And today we're joined by a very special guest, Ralph Smith, who is the pastor of Mitaki Evangelical Church in Tokyo, Japan. He'll join Peter, James, and Jeff as they discuss Deuteronomy chapter 7. We wanted to extend an invitation to you for our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference in the month of July. This is our annual conference here in Birmingham, and this year it'll be on July 17th and 18th, with lectures from Peter Lightheart, James Wood, Mark Bryans, Jeff Myers, and others on love, the greatest of the theological virtues. There is also our Trinity Feast on July 18th, and the conference and the feast this year are really a celebration of 10 years of Theopolis. We held our first class 10 years ago in the month of August, and so we invite you to join us at the conference and at the Trinity Feast to celebrate with us what we've been able to accomplish and to look ahead to a hopeful future. For more information about our conference and that feast, there are links in the show notes, or you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and scroll down to the bottom of the page where we have our events. And lastly, we wanted to remind you about our Theopolis app. In the month of April, we made a significant update to that app and now through a low-cost paywall, you can really dig into the treasure chest that is our work. There are ebooks and courses, audio lectures, there's Alistair Roberts' commentary on nearly the whole Bible, and much, much more. We are adding new content every week, and we really hope that you enjoy it. So to register and sign up for that app, I have a link down there in the show notes for you. And after you sign up for an account, either a free account or a paid account, you then just download our app from the App Store, log in, and you're off to the races. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Ralph Smith, Jeff Myers, and James B. John discussing Deuteronomy chapter 7. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and James B. John. Uh, Alistair Roberts, who is usually with us for the podcast recording, is traveling, so he won't be able to join us today. Brian Motes is in the background doing the recording. He'll be editing and smoothing out everything so that it sounds good to you, our listening audience. We're very, very pleased today to have a special guest joining us for the podcast to discuss uh, Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 8. Ralph Smith is an old friend. He is a pastor in Tokyo, the pastor of Mitaka Evangelical Church in Tokyo. He's been there for 40 plus years and ministering in that church. He also has been doing work on Deuteronomy for a number of years. He's published a book, monograph on Deuteronomy, and he's been working on a commentary on Deuteronomy. So uh, we're really, really happy to have his expertise and his background with us uh, to join us uh, today on the podcast. Ralph, could I get you to say a few words about your work in Tokyo? What took you there? What kinds of things have you been doing? I know it's a long time for you to try to summarize in a brief space, but uh, tell us what it's been like for your ministry there in in Tokyo. Actually, tomorrow is the 42nd anniversary of our first worship service uh, in 1981. So we're right at the point where uh, we have been here for a whole generation. My wife and I and my daughter uh, came to Japan in May of 1981, and on May 17th, 1981, we had our very first worship service. 
We had the service at my wife's mother's home. My wife and my wife's mother, my wife's older brother and his wife, and their oldest son were together. And uh, Ben Zedek was actually born just three months after our first worship service, so he was sort of there. At the time that I first came to Japan, I was a very zealous and dogmatic dispensationalist, premillennial, pre-tribulational, all the way. I, I thought that the year 2000 would never come, that Christ would certainly return and rapture us before then. But over the years in Tokyo, my theology, my faith gradually changed. And part of that was because in uh, 1985, 1986, I began to read things by uh, James Jordan and David Chilton and R.J. Rushdoony, especially Jim's teaching on hermeneutics and on the Christian worldview helped me change my whole perspective on the Bible. Reading his things on symbolism completely changed my literalistic dispensational view of the Bible. And so from 1990, our church became reformed in the sense that we completely put aside dispensationalism. We didn't drop premillennialism exactly, but I had. And we began to practice paedo-baptism and paedo-communion around 1990. We were very slow to pick up liturgy, but liturgy, but the church has, has gradually become much more liturgical. Uh, our numbers grew from seven in mm -hmm. 1981 to about 140 or so members now. And in Tokyo, Japan, that's a good-sized church. Uh, the problem is we don't have a building big enough for everybody to meet. So we have uh, we had we did buy a building in 2007. It's a very good location, just a few minutes from the train station, but we can only get about 60, 60, 50, 65 people in our main sanctuary. We have other people upstairs watching through uh, uh, the uh, computer screen. And then other people still meet at my mother-in-law's home, watching through another computer screen there. And people who were nervous about COVID and so forth can watch through YouTube at their own home, right? But... When we began in 1981, there was such a small group of people after the worship service, we naturally ate lunch together. And as the church grew, we continued to do that. So before COVID, we had like 130 people eating lunch together uh, every, every week at, yeah. Yeah, every Sunday at my mother-in-law's home. And the ladies in the church would, you know, prepare a meal every week. And we had, you know, one and a half hours or so of lunchtime and fellowship together. And that was really a, a great part of our uh, church and our church growth, because you could invite non-Christian people to have lunch together with you and sit and talk with people informally. <clears throat> and God blessed that and used that. Mm. Two or three years ago, my son, Ben Zedek, became the main pastor. Uh, so... Uh, I am the secondary pastor. I'm not mm. an assistant pastor. I'm a pastor, but he is the main pastor, and he has taken over leadership and, and done well. Uh, we hope someday to have uh, this building torn down and to build a new building in the same location. I wish I could tell you exactly how small this place is in square feet, because I, I don't know how to say that, but... Uh, we have less floor space in our church building than you have in your home, Peter. 
Uh-huh. Okay, so yeah. it's not it's not a big place, yeah. but we hope that we can tear this building down and, and make a building that will hold a few more people. And that will cost us maybe $4 million. Hmm. And so we cannot do that uh, anytime soon. Yeah. Congratulations on the uh, anniversary. That's uh, that's wonderful news. And uh, 140 is, uh, would you say that's flirting with megachurch territory in Tokyo? Not megachurch, no, because you, you have Pentecostal people in Tokyo with, you know, four hundred and five hundred people in their churches, and yeah. but the I think the average evangelical church in Tokyo is twenty or thirty members, or maybe as many as fifty. Yeah, and in a lot of the churches, half or more of the members of the church are over sixty. When people right. visit our church, they're just amazed that there are children and families. Yeah. Uh, in in addition to in addition to serving at the church for forty plus years now, you have uh, I know you've done a lot of uh, teaching, writing on Shakespeare's plays. You you've done you've published several books on the Trinity, wonderful books on the Trinity. I encourage our audience to find those if you don't have copies of those. Uh, and you also did uh, a book on Deuteronomy, and you're working on a commentary on Deuteronomy. The book on Deuteronomy is about sonship in Deuteronomy. Um, that's the, would, would you say that's the main thrust of that, that, uh, initial book? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Israel sonship in particular, is that what the, is that what you're focusing on? The, the title of the book is Hear My Son. And the book, I concentrate in the first chapter on explicit statements of the father-son relationship in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the passage in Exodus, you know, Israel is my son, my firstborn, is the most famous explicit statement of a father-son relationship uh, in the books of Moses, perhaps. But there are a number of explicit statements of father-son relationship in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, you remember in chapter one where uh, Yahweh says, I, I carried you like a father carries his child. Or in chapter eight, where he says, I disciplined you like a father disciplines his son. And in Deuteronomy 32, God talks about being a father to Israel and even something like being a mother to Israel. But there are explicit statements in the book of Deuteronomy about the father-son relationship, which uh, people don't usually talk about very much. Mm-hmm. The thing that uh, I emphasize that as far as I know might be new at least it's something I never read in a commentary. The problem is I don't remember everything I've heard Jim say uh, or everything that I've heard you say. So plagiarism is my spiritual gift. (laughs) I think most of the things that I write are are borrowed from you and Jim or Jeff or somebody from the BH list one way or another, right? But at any rate, in the, the fifth word, Fifth commandment, right? Uh, If you honor your father and mother, you will live long and you will be blessed in the land that the Lord your God gives you. The the promise of long life and prosperity and blessing is the double promise. But that's repeated over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, not with reference primarily to obeying your father and mother or honoring your father and mother, but with reference to honoring Yahweh. Mm -hmm. If you honor Yahweh by obeying his commandments, 
you will live long and you will prosper, do well, or be blessed in the land. And when that's repeated a number of times in the book of Deuteronomy, you notice, well, wait a minute, this means you're presupposing that God is the Father and that by honoring him, we get the double promise of the fifth word. Yeah. Chapter three talks about a single promise from the fifth word, because sometimes you don't have both promises in the same verse. You just have one or the other, but it's the same effect. Yeah. It means God is the Father, and if you honor him, you're going to be blessed, or if you honor him, you're going to live long. So the idea of, of the father-son relationship being Yahweh's relationship with the people of Israel is a fundamental and very important part of the whole book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 4, I talk about the law of the rebellious son in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 and following. And in that chapter, I show that the law of the rebellious son is something that is part of the whole, it permeates the whole book of Deuteronomy. Either the whole book of Deuteronomy is alluding to the law of the rebellious son, or the law of the rebellious son is alluding to the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. But the point is, over and over again, Israel is said to be stubborn, mm -hmm. rebellious. You don't hear my word, you don't obey my word. And so what happens to Israel is because they are stubborn and rebellious, and they don't obey the word of God, they die in the wilderness. And then Moses warns them near the end of the book, I know you're going to be more rebellious in the future. You've been this rebellious my whole the whole time I've been with you, so I know you're going to be rebellious again, and you're going to die again. But there's the promise of resurrection, the promise that they will be given a new heart and have a new future. Mm -hmm. The most ironic thing about the law of the rebellious son is that it is epitomized in Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron are the supreme examples of a rebellious son. Oh. It happens, of course, in Numbers chapter 20, which is in the 40th year of the Exodus, uh, in the fifth month, I think it was. Uh, Moses and Aaron rebel against the commandment of God by striking the rock when they were supposed to speak to it. And God says, you did not sanctify me in the presence of the people, which is the same thing that Aaron's sons were charged with in the book of Leviticus chapter 10, 40 years previously. Hmm. So Moses and Aaron imitated the sin of Nadab and Abihu, and they have to die in the wilderness. They cannot go into the promised land. So it's just profoundly ironic that the real rebellious son is the nation of Israel, but especially as represented by Moses and Aaron. Yeah. And then in chapter 5, I talk about what covenant means, and there I'm borrowing exactly from Jim's book in the, uh, the uh, Exodus book, where he talks about a covenant relationship reflecting the relationship of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that the original covenant is the covenant among the persons of the Trinity. Oh, that's great, yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things you're doing there, I, I know that's in the background, you're implicitly or maybe explicitly rebutting the idea that Deuteronomy is just a suzerainty treaty. Where oh, yes. Yahweh appears, yes. Yahweh appears as you as Lord, ruler, and it's just this kind of right. legal framework. Yes. Yeah. And there are ways of construing the uh, five-point covenant model that really sounds legalistic. Mm -hmm. I didn't really emphasize that very much, but you know, here's God is the transcendent, 
and there's a hierarchy that God has appointed, and here are the rules, the ethics. And then if you do these, you'll be blessed, and if you don't do these, you'll be cursed. And if that's the end of the story, it does sound legalistic. Mm-hmm. I think I, I follow the five-point, or uh, I use five-aspect covenant model, because that's the model that Jim uses in his uh, covenant sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And right. this is the best most helpful single book that I have on the book of Deuteronomy. I've got, I don't know how many commentaries and articles and so forth, but this is really profoundly helpful. I go back to this over and over again, and I recommend this book uh, for anybody that wants to study covenant sequence and think about what the covenant means, because Jim gives you, he gives you the five aspect model, but he does also six aspects, three aspects, seven aspects, 12 aspects. That's what he calls covenant covenant sequence. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a much broader picture of what the covenant relationship is. And the fact that you have complementary, integrated, complex approaches to understanding the covenant. But ultimately, as Jim points out, in his uh, commentary on Exodus, that the covenant is the relationship of life between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's not a legalistic model. And the ancient Near Eastern, and I talk about this in the book just a little bit, the ancient Near Eastern treaties are not at all the source of the book of Deuteronomy. The the, uh, covenant with Noah in the ancient world is the source of all ancient ideas about covenant thinking and so forth. It is pervasive in the ancient Near East, but it comes from the Bible being the context for the ancient mm-hmm. Near East, right. not for the ancient Near East to be the context of the Bible. Yeah. Great stuff. Thanks for that. That's uh, really uh, illuminating. I I read the book some years ago. I didn't remember the uh, you're highlighting Moses and Aaron as rebellious sons. That's really, that's really intriguing. Yeah, that's one of the things, Ralph, that I remember about your book on Eternal Covenant is you pointed out, I think, pretty persuasively that father-son relationships are covenantal. That's mm-hmm. pretty clear in Deuteronomy. It's not just it's not just king and subject or king and servant, but father-son relationships are covenantal. And that, if that's the case, then eternal father-son relationships are is also covenantal, which, as you said earlier, just a few minutes ago, is the origin of um, the covenants uh, between God and man, or between man and man. So it, you, you, it's not improper to read back into the Trinity the origin of covenant, and it, and it makes it, as you say, not legalistic, not just a, a formal kind of, uh, you know political arrangement, but it's much more than that. In fact, we're going to see that today in Deuteronomy 7, where uh, love is kind of at the center of this passage and God's father, the relationship with uh, his, his people or, or even his, his uh, relationship as a husband to his bride. That's also covenantal. We know that of course, from Malachi and uh, lots of other places. So this, the idea of covenant is so much richer and fuller than many people are used to thinking. Yeah, well, Jeff brought up uh, Deuteronomy 7, which is the topic of this uh, this episode. Uh, just uh, once again, great to have you, Ralph, and look forward to all the contributions we'll make over the next uh, next couple of hours to these episodes of our podcast. As we've been working our way through the early chapters of Deuteronomy, 
we looked at uh, the restatement of the 10 words in Deuteronomy 5, and partly using uh, Jim Jordan's work on covenant sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, along with many others who, who make the same suggestion. We've been, we've been looking at the sections of Deuteronomy. We're in the early sections now, but the sections of Deuteronomy match up to the 10 words. And uh, in chapter 7, we're still in the first word section of Deuteronomy. We're still dealing with the issues of idolatry, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, and that comes up some several times explicitly in this chapter. There's references to other gods. Uh, if you include the so-called preface to the 10 words as part of the first word, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I think that's part of the first word. And that language also shows up in Deuteronomy 7. So we have these references to phrases that come out of the first word that are repeated here. We saw that in chapter 6 also, that um, uh, Moses is uh, using fragments of, the, of that particular commandment in expounding on it. But I think that what's interesting in chapter 7 and in some, in some following chapters too is the different permutation and wrinkles that we get on the first word. Just as stated in the 10 words, it seems like the first word is just a matter of avoiding idolatry. If we don't set up and set up a false god in the fa- before the face of Yahweh, if we don't set up some false god before our face, if we don't worship other gods or or love other gods in our heart, then we're then we're okay. But it's clear from Deuteronomy 7 that what's required of the first word is something much more active and aggressive, because here we have uh, a statement of the requirement for feral warfare, a war of utter destruction, that's under the heading of the first word. So it's not simply avoiding idolatry, but it's intolerance of idolatry, destroying idols. In the case of the particular nations of Canaan, it means destroying those peoples. That's part of keeping the first word. The first word is a call to arms. In the polytheistic world of Israel, uh, as in the polytheistic world of the New Testament, Keeping the first word was meant that you were at war with all of the idols that surrounded you, uh, and I think we can we can link this up to the uh, to the Shema that we looked at in the last episode in chapter six. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and that goes on to talk about loving God with all your heart and soul and strength, and then teaching that to your children. And that pedagogy is supposed to take this concrete public form. You write these words on the doorposts of your house. You write these words on the gates. And so you have this, not just teaching going on, but you have this kind of whole culture that exhibits Israel's commitment to the law and is a constant uh, reminder and memorial of Israel's commitment to the law. When Israel enters Canaan, the Canaanites have their own uh, their own kind of pedagogy, their own kind of culture uh, with their pillars and their altars and their Asherah poles and their, their shrines. And what Israel is supposed to do is, first of all, eliminate those so they can establish Yahweh's culture and Yahweh's civilization in the land. Uh, but that's all. Uh, that is part of the first word. Part of it being the first word is to be at war with all other, all other gods. The other thing that seems to come out in chapter seven, I, I was noticing references to not just to the first word, but to the second word. Verse five refers to burning graven images with fire. That's the last phrase of verse five. Uh, verse 9 picks up on the phrasing of a thousand generations, keeps his covenant and loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love me and guard his commandments. That's that's second word territory. So even though this is part of the first word section, 
the first word kind of bleeds over into the second word. And then at the end of the chapter, interestingly, uh, we return to this idea of uh, destroying the images. And there's a warning against coveting the silver and gold that's in the in the images, verse 25. So it seems like we're in, in a general way, at least, chapter seven kind of encompasses the 10 words. It, it has these references to the first word, allusions to the second word. The fact that Israel is a holy people may have connections with the third word. And then the chapter ends with this reference to coveting. And uh, that suggests that the, even though this is in the first word section of Deuteronomy, the first word is kind of the paradigmatic word. It is the commandment that encompasses all other commandments. And every every other commandment is a form of, is a particular application of the first word. Every other of the 10 words is a violation of any other 10 words is somehow a violation of the first word. If you disobey any of God's commandments, then you're in effect setting up another God before him. So it, it seems like you have this um, this kind of all-encompassing view of the of the first word within chapter seven. One last one last word before I um, before I stop my uh, monologue, and that is the structurally. I think chapter seven does hold together as a as a unit. It's uh, surrounded by references to Cherem. Uh There's a reference to utterly destroying the seven nations of Canaan. That's that's in verse two, uh, ch- verses twenty five and twenty six. Return to that. Uh, the word Cherem is used twice. Uh, referring to the idols, the the idols' images are harem to Israel. If Israel brings them into their houses, then they become harem. They come under the ban. They come under this the rules of utter destruction. There's a reference to fire at the beginning. You're going to burn the images with fire. There's a reference to burning the images with fire again in verses 25 and 26. So you have this uh, this frame around chapter seven that sets it off as a as a unit. And I think uh, the other the rest of the chapter does seem to arrange is arranged in a kind of chiastic chiastic arrangement in my analysis of it i came up with verse 11 as the center just a general statement you shall keep the commandment the statutes and the judgments or the rituals and the judgments which i'm commanding you today to do them and then uh, other things more specific exhortations kind of organize themselves around that center peter quick comment on your um remarks on this idea that israel are to come in and destroy the images. Um, it seems very interesting to me that kind of Canaan has filled the land with images and kind of what Israel are to do in some senses is to replace that with something verbal, with, with word. And so Israel are to, are to write God's commandments. They've, they've been given a kind of verbal revelation. God has spoken to them and they're now to write God's law and various bits of it at least <laughs> all over the land, essentially. And so the role that the idols have played in Canaan, that these visual things have played, are now to be replaced with this primarily um, written form of um, revelation. And that just strikes me as a, uh, an interesting transition that's going on here. Yeah, written and communal. So I mm. think uh, Ralph has pointed out earlier uh, Jim's comments about how helpful they've been to him. One of the comments that Jim makes about these pagan religions is their their shrine religions. You go to the uh, image and you ask the image for whatever you want, uh, whatever you need, uh, business, uh, fertility, you know, good crops, and that's you're just interacting with this image or uh, possibly with uh, the cultic priests or even the 
the prostitutes there at the Asherah pole or whatever it might be. But if you get rid of all of that, then I think Deuteronomy bears this out. Then what you're doing is you're interacting with one another. You're hearing the word of God as the priests uh, recite it in these um, festivals. You're you, just like you said, James, and and fascinating in the center of this passage here, bounded on both ends by destroying these images in the center, is this promise that they'll be blessed in the kinds of blessings that are listed in verses 14 through, uh, well, 14 and 15, well, actually 13 through 14 and 15, are the same kind of blessings that the people of the land thought that they were going to get by bowing down and serving these idols, these carved images. But the Lord promises them that if they're faithful to him, if they love him and serve him, that they'll be given all these things. So there's this there's this um, hint, more than a hint maybe here, that the things that the nations desire, well, you can have, I'll give them to you as a gift, but it's not going to come through your, you know, bowing down before these carved images and doing and engaging in their idolatrous kinds of rituals. And just to add one one other wrinkle to what James said, just a confer- confirmation point. Uh, Deuteronomy 27, uh, when you enter the land, you're supposed they're supposed to set up pillars and coat them with lime and then write, uh, I don't I don't remember now it's the commandments or the curses on those pillars. And uh, Jim Jim has pointed out uh, that the lime is not going to stay on those pillars. <laughs> it's going to be worn off. Uh, rain is going to melt it and it's going to it's going to dissolve and uh, that's the point. the the writing on the lime covered stones, dissolves and then seeps into the land. The land itself becomes kind of saturated with the word instead of being again, covered with these images. Mm, that's nice. And and um, something else that occurred to me, Peter, I, I think you said that you had verse 11 at the center of your um, chiastic structure. I, either way, it, it's got this phrase, which you get elsewhere, um, uh, at least at the start of chapter six, you get it. it. You have the commandment dash the, however you translate it, statues and rules or, or rituals or, or, or something like that. But you often seem to get this collocation. So sort of a, a single, you know, the commandment and then dash the statutes and the rules. And it, it seems to be emphasizing the way in which there is this unity to the um law as a whole, which I think you were um, referring to. It's obviously broken down into all these parts, but but there is this uh, sense in which you, you either keep it or you don't. It, it is just this, the commandment in some senses. We started out the chapter with uh, this list of seven nations. This is one of a number of lists of the nations that Israel is going to uh, battle and conquer. The, and the, the lists have different different numbers sometimes four, sometimes six. Uh, I think it's the the Girgashites that are the kind of outlier that aren't usually included in this list. Uh, but it, it occurs to me that this is a, uh, the number seven obviously is significant. It's a creation number. If we think in terms of the table of nations from Genesis 10, uh, typologically that's 70, 70 peoples that are listed there. So what we have here in the seven nations of Canaan are kind of tithe of the nations which suggests to me a kind of pledge. Israel's going to go in and they're going to battle and clear away these nations. The Lord is going to clear away the nations. 
the Lord is going to give these nations into the hand of Israel. Uh, but that's a that's a, a kind of first fruits, a tithe, a pledge of an eventual conquest of all seventy nations. That uh, eventually all seventy nations not 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 going to be caromed in the sense of being utterly destroyed, but are going to their idols are going to be are going to be thrown down, uh, and they're going to be they're going to be become living sacrifice. They're going to become whole burnt offerings to the Lord. The other thing that um, one can't remember which. Uh, commentator pointed this out, but there's a, a numerical link between the seven nations listed in verse one and then uh, the, what's said in verses 17 through 24, which is a warning or an exhortation. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater, and then there's an exhortation not to fear and a reminder of what the Lord did to Pharaoh. And in that section, verses 17 through 24, Yahweh your God, that phrase is used seven times. So there's a it seems like there's a, and that's in the context of talking about the war against these seven nations. So you've got seven nations greater, greater and mightier than Israel, but Israel doesn't have to fear because they have Yahweh, your God, and the, you've got this numerical match that that sets Yahweh in opposition to the seven nations. Yeah, I, I noticed a few sevens to the um, lists, actually, in this chapter. So uh, one example is um, verse 13, so God will bless um he will bless the fruit of your womb of your ground um and then sort of five other things your grain wine oil increase of herds and young of the flock um and i think there were some other lists that followed that um pattern as well so there does seem to be this sevenfold structure quick comment if i can about just the um not the explicit numbers but the the fact that the nations are more numerous um than Israel, that seems to be present here, and then kind of later on. Well, so in verse one, it's explicit, and then later on in in the chapter, there's the possibility of them being outnumbered, and um, it, it seems to be kind of elsewhere, like in chapter twenty, when we get there, there's the uh, idea of Israel being outnumbered in in war, and it sounds to me that there's at least a slight tension. Um, with the fact that Israel have become hugely fruitful and numerous in Egypt, um, and yet now they arrive and are still said to be the um, the fewest and less than the uh, nations in Canaan, and it seems to me at the very least that we need many, many millions of people in uh, Canaan at this time for the narrative to to add up. Really, yeah, that's that, yeah, that's interesting. The Israel is not Israel's not small. It's not like a handful of people coming up out of Egypt, and yet they're in this situation. I mean, they're they're entering a land where there are giants, so they're going to have to be giant killers. But the whole setup also is kind of an uh, it's anachronistic, but it's a David and Goliath kind of situation where Israel is the David uh, facing the facing not only literal giants in the land, but also peoples who are much larger than they are. Um, I just th- had a couple thoughts. Uh, one. When you talk about Israel being fewer in number in uh, verse 7, it, it was not because you were more in number that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. And I always understood this, you know, you were the fewest of all peoples, pointing back to God's election of Abraham. I didn't think of it as referring to Israel's present situation um, at the time that Moses spoke the book of Deuteronomy. But uh, Peter mentioned the expression, Yahweh, your God. 
And in the entire Old Testament, Yahweh, your God, or my God, or their God, our God, but that entire, that expression occurs in the entire Old Testament 600 times. In the book of Deuteronomy, it occurs 300 times. <laughs> Yahweh, your God, Yahweh, our God, is the quintessential expression of God's covenant love and covenant relationship with his people. And the book of Deuteronomy brings that to the fore more than any other single book in the Bible. And there was one other thought that I had, and that is the, the irony that in verse 1 and verse 2 and 3, uh, you shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them, you shall not intermarry with them. And then verse 4 says, because they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And I think that that means that uh, verse 4, because that that controls what's going on in the previous verses. Because the first thing that happens almost in the book of Joshua, when Joshua and the people of Israel come into the land, Joshua and his, not Joshua personally, but his, his uh, servants, his emissaries, make a covenant with Rahab. That's one of the first things that happens. And then later, Rahab marries a Jew. We don't, I don't think we know who it was. But then she has Boaz, and Boaz marries a Moabitess. But it's okay for a Jew to marry Rahab because Rahab is not trying to turn their heart away from the true God. She has aligned herself with the true God. She has turned away and turned against the people of Jericho. And she has aligned herself with Israel. And if Canaanites will align themselves with the true God, then they have uh, already, in a way, destroyed their own culture, destroyed their gods, and put all of that behind them. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. That's really good. Because uh, I think that those verses are often understood to be uh, ethnically or racially based, to be invariable that there's no there's no way that any of these Canaanites can be delivered from this from this fate of being utterly destroyed, but uh, that's yeah that's uh, very effective to point out that it's it's one of it's one of the first things that happens once they go into the land and they're actually these rules actually kind of kick in because these are rules having to do with the conquest they they seem to violate it but as you say they're not because um, Rahab is already kind of torn down her altar, smashed her sacred pillars, hewn down her asherim. She's burned the uh, burned the graven image, implicitly done that by joining with Israel. I, want, I wanted to pick up on your comment about the number of times Yahweh, your God. It seems to me here in this passage that there's got to be some play on Elohim as, an, as the name of Yahweh and Elohim as the plural other gods that Israel's supposed to avoid. I think that play is going on. I mean, it's in the 10 words. Uh, I am Yahweh, your Elohim, thou shalt have no Elohim before me, because Yahweh is that Elohim. And it seems more, even uh, more pointed in uh, chapter 7, because verse 9, know therefore that Yahweh, your God, he is Elohim, the faithful Elohim. Uh, and it's just just before, just before, after they've been warned uh, that they shouldn't follow after other gods, verse 4, and serve other gods. So um, uh, the one way to state what I what I think is going on, there may be a better way to say this, but one thing I think is going on is everything everything that Canaanites are looking for in their Elohim is actually from Yahweh. 
he is the one who gives all the prosperity fertility we've already we've already made this point uh before but i think it's it seems to be implied by the way the names play out back to what you and ralph were talking about just earlier about the first five verses but not only is it possible that canaanites can avoid being utterly destroyed it's also possible that israel can be destroyed um and so you got in verse four uh if you do serve other gods then the anger of yahweh will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly um and so it, it's almost as if the the canaanites here will stand as a constant reminder to israelites that this if they become like canaanites they will be destroyed um and so the canaanites are a mirror to israel of what they would be without yahweh uh which is death and destruction and uh a cessation of of their their nation yeah it's a helpful point jeff i mean and and it's why it's so misleading to talk about what's going on here as genocide because there aren't two standards here kind of one for israel and one for the nations um they alike end in destruction um if they disobey the lord yeah great point uh james uh I, I just i, I want to uh i think ralph's ralph's point about intermarriage is really important i think we we don't want to miss the force of what's said in verse three you shall not intermarry with them then it elaborates uh daughters are the currency of exchange you don't give your daughters you don't take daughters because as ralph said they'll turn uh, your sons away from following me and serve other gods so uh i mean this is one place one of many places in scripture that where intermarriage is intermarriage is a prelude to destruction i mean the first time we have it is before the flood beginning of Deuter- uh, rather uh, genesis 6 the sons of god intermarry with the daughters of men and then that leads to a world that's full of violence a world that's full of evil the world that the lord has to destroy uh and uh that that uh, threat of intermarriage becomes a threat to Israel, to the people of God, all the way through the all the way through the Old Testament. Paul's still talking about that in the New, the danger of uh, being unequally yoked and the need to be joined together in the Lord. So uh, I just didn't want to didn't want to lose the thrust of that because it's a it, it's a permanent rule I think for for the people of God that uh, we don't in law ourselves to uh, to idolaters. Uh, we believers marry believers. Uh, we don't we don't insert ourselves into a different heritage, or insert our children into a different heritage. The the phrase the word intermarry is often translated as father in law. Uh, it's just, uh, the same the same term I think, and but it's kind of an in law. The issue is not so much the it's not only the the influence that a, an idolatrous wife might have on her husband, but it's also a kind of plugging into a different heritage heritage and a different a different fatherhood so that that's uh that's a permanent prohibition uh and violating that prohibition is highly destructive uh to the integrity of the church before we move on to another section of the passage as one thing i verse five just kind of echoed in my head i've been i was at a, a teaching a, a course this past weekend and uh we sang psalm 46 a number of times and um the similarity between what there what israel is supposed to do to the altars, pillars, asherim, and graven images uh, in Canaan, it uh, echoes what Yahweh himself does on a much grander scale 
in Psalm 46. And the thing that kind of that kind of stood out to me is that you have these several verbs for destruction, and then he burns the chariots with fire. So you have uh, you have uh, the Lord destroying mainly implements of war, bows, spears, and he burns the chariots with fire. Uh, Israel's doing that to religious religious symbols and religious institutions in the land, but uh, that they're just they're just mimicking what the Lord does on a on a global scale when he makes war against his enemies. I guess too the other thing that occurred to me is that there's it feels like there's something of a of a sacrificial procedure going on there. Also, you tear things, you smash them, you break them and you burn them. Uh, that that feels like they're a kind of sacrificial procedure that ends up by carrying out harem and devoting things to destruction, you're dedicating things to the Lord as as uh, as as sacrifices. That's explicit later on in Deuteronomy when it's talking about the rebellious cities within Israel. Uh, when cities in Israel turn to other gods, then they're supposed to be treated like Canaanite cities. They come under the ban, uh, and they are to be offered all the all the stuff in the city is to be offered as as a whole burnt offering. That's an explicit, or as an ascension offering. That's an explicit phrase that's used. So it seems like you have a similar kind of motif here in in verse five. Um, here in Japan, just about four weeks ago, an eighty four year old man who is uh, from the Shinto background. Uh, came to me and he talked, wanted to be baptized and he wanted to talk to me about Christian faith. And he was really like the Philippian jailer. He didn't really understand very much, but he wanted to believe in Jesus. And so when I talked to him about baptism, I didn't have a chance to talk to him about putting away his Shinto shrines. And the reason I didn't have a chance to talk to him about it is because he told me that he did it before I even brought the subject up. He wanted to be baptized and he figured out on his own, that he had to get rid of the kamidana, the little Shinto shrine that people keep in their homes. He got rid of it, and then he asked me to be baptized. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, you. I mean, you're uh, you're in a situation where you're encountering something much more similar to what Israel's encountering than we do here in the states or in England. I mean, I re- I remember one of the one of the very memorable moments in a uh, a visit to Korea, uh, my host took me to a a Buddhist temple, and there were various kinds of shrines. And I, it was it was the the week of college entrance exams, so there were a lot of moms there that were offering uh, presenting offerings so that their children would do well in the college entrance exams. And it occurred to me that I you know I. I had never actually seen idolatry at work, and it also occurred to me. I've, I've used this illustration a lot, but it, the kind of Isaiah uh, idol polemic moment when uh, a mom comes out of the shrine where she's been praying to an idol, flips open her cell phone, and makes a call on her cell phone, so doesn't realize that she's uh, she's using this technology that's made from the same material that she's that she's uh, worshiping inside the shrine. But yet, uh, that's a uh, uh, you're in a part of the world where that's those uh, those kind of that that kind of overt idolatry is still very prominent. All of this uh, uh, devotion of the land to the Lord, this uh, war against the idols, is supported in verse six by the fact that Israel is a holy people and a chosen people. They're claimed by God. Holy means uh, something is holy when it belongs to the Lord. The Lord claims it in a particular way. The Lord claims it especially by the presence of His glory. He's present and indwells. The tabernacle by his glory, and that makes it holy. 
He's in the midst of his people. That makes them a holy people. He claims them as his own. Uh, and it's that status as a holy people that is the uh, kind of the, the foundation for the task that they're given in the land. Being a holy people, loving the Lord, worshiping him alone means that they carry on this battle against the idols. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because on the one hand, like you were saying, Peter, it sounds quite foreign, this idea of going into a, a land and tearing down the images and destroying idols and, and so forth. Um, and yet, at the same time, that symbolic aspect of our world and, and of the symbolic edge of one culture taking over another is well understood today. I mean, even in secular um, cultures, the desire to tear down images connected um, to the past and destroy various things and, and to kind of come up with new creeds, new flags that people want to be um, raised by different universities or institutions and whatever. This kind of world of, of symbolism is, is well understood in, in the secular culture and to state the obvious kind of need, needs to be well understood in, in the church as well. And so on the one hand, this is very foreign to us, but on the other hand, it's, it's not so foreign, is it? That's a great point. It's not foreign because of, you know, how we're made. Uh, we, we're not just pure spiritual disembodied beings. Um, and again, reading through this, uh, Peter mentioned this in his monologue about the connection between the first and second word. It's pretty striking uh, that all through here, uh, you get little references to not just the first word, but to the second word. For example, in verse 9, again, uh, so God is a faithful God, sounds very like a jealous God, who keeps covenant, steadfast love uh, with those who keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Well, there's a second word reference, and then repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. Of course, that not only does the Lord love and that we're required to love him, it's going to come out in verse 12, but there are those who hate him. And the hating is displayed, is, is evidenced in the way they serve God or the way they or, or the way they serve their gods. I think, James, your point about the, the intimate connection between uh, maybe ideology and imagery ideology and also uh, statues and pictures uh, and other sorts of cultural icons is is still the case. I mean, we might think about this just in terms of the ancient Near East and, um, you know, images, uh, maybe humaniform, idolatrous images or, or animals or, or trees or whatever. But in the modern world, it's tends to be images of of men and images of women images of people which which is fitting since the lord has come and we don't have any real temptation to worship animals or anything in the woods the idolatry now becomes um humanism but this connection is fascinating i think sometimes we're we're so worried maybe this is the case maybe it's not i, I think i've noticed this we're so worried about separating the first and second word in opposition to uh, the Catholics, for example, or the Lutherans, that we forget how intimately they're connected. Um, to be, to have God as your God, to love and 
and and have your allegiance to him alone means that you're going to be very careful about images and icons and other sorts of uh, physical representations of God and the faith. Yeah, I mentioned the uh, uh, the reference to Israel as a holy people in verse six, but uh, there's there's a kind of premise behind that. The reason why Israel is a holy people is because Yahweh, your God, chose you and selected you as his treasure, his precious, out of all the peoples of the earth. And the reason why he chose you, verse 7 goes on to say, is because he loved you. And then uh, the next several verses elaborate on that love. This is, uh, I think, getting into the territory that Ralph highlighted at the beginning, uh, the, the thrust of his book on Deuteronomy, that uh, it's about this uh, paternal relationship this relationship, a personal relationship, a relationship of love with Israel, that's, that is the, uh, the uh, foundation and the atmosphere of Deuteronomy, uh, rather than simply uh, this uh, illegal, uh, illegal arrangement. Uh, and I think uh, Jeff mentioned in that context that uh, it's also marital overtones. And I think that's evident in verse 7, the, the phrase that's translated, uh, set his love on, um, that uh, that's a term that often refers to desire, sometimes kind of passion. It refers explicitly to sexual desire in some contexts. So it's it's not referring to love in a, in a kind of the sense of just doing good for somebody without emotion or affection. The Lord chooses out of affection that he has for Israel. Uh, it's because he has uh, a desire for them that he chooses them and loves them. There's also verse eight talks about the oath that he swore. He's keeping, keeping that oath, and he's faithful to that oath. But his choices is behind everything. I had a seminary professor that uh, said, uh, "You know, you want to apply this kind of theology of election when your wife uh, asks, um, why do you love me?' You don't want to start listing off attributes and characteristics because uh, your wife might lose those attributes and characteristics." I love you for your energy. Well, what happens if she's disabled? Will you still love her? And the only answer, why do you love, is because you love. <laughs> it's just, uh, uh, and there's a choice involved there, and there's love that's set on people and desire. That's the basis of the Lord's love and the basis of Israel's status as a holy people and their calling in the land. Yeah, and in marriage, you you look back on the choice you made in the past and you live in terms of that in the present, because every moment in a marriage is a crisis situation, whether you're going to choose to love and serve your wife or your husband. Uh, and, and you're also looking in the future. So that here in Deuteronomy 7, it starts off, you know, verse 7, verse 1, I'm sorry, in the future, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land. Uh, but then this is all grounded in the past, as you said, Peter, verse 8. It's not just that the Lord loves you now, but he's keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers when he brought you out of the land uh, or, or from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, um, and this is always something I think about real biblical religion. It's not just ideology. It's not just doctrines or, you know, propositions about God and man and salvation. It's it's historical. It's rooted uh, their their life, their identity is rooted in the past, uh, and God reminds them of this that He's been He's been uh, faithful to the promises He made to your fathers, 
And when you come into the land, don't forget that that's who I am and continue, continue to serve and trust me because I'm not just your past or your present. I'm also your future as well. Um, and that's, that's part of the covenant. The covenant always has this historical, uh, temporal kind of dimension to it. It's not just, you know, vertical. It's also horizontal across, across time. The emphasis on love here is, is really uh, strong and beautiful. Like the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, it really is about love. Covenant is love. And you can see that very clearly in this chapter. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.